Today's sermon text comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, house, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child, his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, all of you today, uh, this morning is the season of Advent, and uh, you know, the word Advent is just Latin for the coming. And so what we're doing for these first four Sundays in December is we're meditating on the coming of Jesus Christ into this world 2,000 years ago and what that means for us today. Uh, last Sunday, we covered the passage where God told Joseph that his wife Mary was carrying in her womb the Son of God. So we talked about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, God becoming human, God becoming one of us. And today we're going to take a look now at the events surrounding Jesus' birth. We're going to take a look at one, the king's inner circle. And then two, we're going to take a look at the king's authority. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the king's deliverance. So first, the king's inner circle. 
You know, our passage starts off with wise men from the east who have come to Jerusalem looking for Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews. And, you know, uh, Jesus, uh, his last name is not Christ, okay? Uh, Christ means anointed one. And in those days, kings were anointed with oil. So Jesus Christ simply means Jesus the king. It's a title. So whenever you see Jesus Christ in the New Testament, that's people saying, hey, that's Jesus the king. Now, the Greek word for wise men here is a word used in the ancient world to refer to Persian priests. So these men were leading figures in the religious court um, of Persia. And so what we have here are not Jews, but outsiders as the first ones to come worship Jesus as king. And it's really a fascinating point, and it's, it's not a small point or a sub-point here. It's a major point in Christianity. In the Gospel of Luke, God reveals the birth of Jesus as the Savior of the world to shepherds in the field. These are farmers. These are humble, modest, and simple people. In verse 23, when, uh, as Lauren read, when Joseph brings the family back from Egypt, he settled as far from the centers of royal power as he could. He went to Nazareth. He grew up a Nazarene. Now, what does that mean? Well, we get a hint of it in, gospel of, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. Before Nathaniel uh, becomes a disciple of Jesus, he learns that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he's appalled he blurts out, Nazareth, can, can anything good come from there? You see, everyone in Israel looked down upon anyone from the backwater of Nazareth. Yet as our passage shows, God arranged things so that Nazareth was exactly where the Savior of the world grew up. You know, the world has always despised people from the wrong places and with the wrong credentials. It insists if anybody has the answers, they have to come from certain places. They have to come from people with certain credentials. They have to look a certain way who have gone to certain schools. They have to come from Washington, D.C., not Bakersfield. And this is because we're always trying to justify ourselves we need to desperately feel superior to others as if our identity and our purpose is bound up in it. We live in a world where everyone wants to be in the inner circle, don't we? The inner circle of friends, the favorite in the family, the inner circle at work, the inner circle of society, the inner circle of success. But friends, everything about Jesus, everything about Christmas contradicts and opposes that impulse. And if you understand what Christmas is all about, if you understand what Christianity is about, then you can be liberated from all of this. Because the Bible's teaching is that God operates differently. Actually, he habitually operates in the very opposite way. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, God initially brings his message to whom? Not through the Egyptians, not through the Persians, not through the Romans, but through the Jews. A small nation and a little race that is seldom in power. 
And in the New Testament, the story of the gospel begins again outside of the inner circle, outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, outside of their leaders, outside of the city capital of power and connection. The greatest person in the history of the world We keep talking about this person named Jesus who was born in a manger where three wise men came, where shepherds came. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. Why do we keep talking about this person? And yet this person was born to a carpenter and he's from Nazareth. He came not in strength, but in weakness. To a poor family in a stable. He didn't have any academic credentials. He had no social status. You know, we hear much today about refugees from war and persecution and oppression. Well, we see in our passage here that Jesus himself was a refugee, driven out of his homeland in the exact same way. And so, friends, Christmas means that Jesus Christ, the King, has come into the world, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't behave like a king the world expects, does he? He turns the world idea of sex, success, sorry, <laughs> of success upside down. <laughs> sex too, all right? Um, but wrong sermon, different passage. It's not about, <laughs> it's not about hoarding superiority, glory, or power, Right? That's not going to solve the world's problems. It's about giving it away. And this is what Jesus did when he left his throne in heaven uh, to save the entire world. He left his inner circle of glory and power with the triune God, with the angels that worship him, his inner circle of perfection, and he brings us into the most precious kingdom we could ever imagine. So why? So he could just be with us. We can never earn it. It's all by grace. This is for the religious and the irreligious. This is for the person with Christian heritage. This is for the person without Christian heritage. This is for the farmer and for the aristocrat, no matter what race or gender or class, occupation, connections, past, present, or future. Everyone gets access to this king. So the point of the first point is this. Jesus has no inner circle. He actually left his to acquire you. And nothing is ever the same. You are a child of God. This is your unchangeable identity. This is your returning joy. This is your steady hope. This is the strength of your right hand. This defines you. You are a follower of the king with no inner circle. Everyone has access. Now let's take a look at the second thing we see in our passage, the king's authority. You know, in verse 2, the wise men come before King Herod, who is the present king of Israel at that time, and they ask him, where is the king who has been born king of the Jews? (laughs) Now when you're coming into a palace and you ask, where is the king? It's going to alarm the person who's actually sitting on the throne, right? You go into an office and you say, and you ask the current CEO, hey, where's the new CEO? (laughs) What are you talking about? What do you know? (laughs) Verse 3 tells us that when King Herod heard this, he was troubled, but this is an understatement. History tells us 
that Herod was actually a violent ruler. He came to power through murder and deception. Uh, then he had 10 wives. Can you believe that? He had 10 wives who had children, and they grew up in this atmosphere of power and control and deception. They contended against each other for his throne, and as Herod got older, he grew increasingly paranoid, and he even had some of his wives and their sons imprisoned and executed. Caesar Augustus, is, um, he made this famous pun that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And it was this same Herod who was, uh, wanted to be sure that he eliminated the would-be ruler that he ordered an execution of all the male children under two in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is a very small town, and it's been recorded that being a small town, Bethlehem lost 30 sons during that time. But you know, King Herod's reaction to the newborn king is in a sense a picture of all of us. Let me explain. You know, if you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then one of you has to give in. There can't be two kings. There will be constant war. Only one person can sit on the absolute throne of your life. And the message of Christmas is that Jesus can't comes and he comes claiming to be the king. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, I believe I have this up here behind me. This is what Jesus says to the disciples that want to follow him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this is used, uh, you know, as uh, sort of a teaching, sort of to knock down Christianity for its ridiculous sayings, but actually this is a hyperbole. It's not meant to be taken literally, right? Jesus is using this as an expression to make a point. You see, Jesus is calling for an allegiance to him so supreme that all other priorities and all other commitments find their alignment in him. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, but it triggers a deep resistance within the human heart. Let's explore this just a little bit. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 8, Paul says that the human mind in its natural state is ekthra. And ekthra is a Greek word that literally means against or hostile toward any kind of outside authority. Right? So Paul is saying the human mind, the human heart is hostile to outside authority. Paul then adds, naturally, we do not want to submit to God's authority, nor can we do so. You see, at the core of the human heart is this impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. Right? I remember um, I was a youth pastor, uh, man, like eight, nine years ago, and this one kid would just not, he would not listen to anything I would say, right? And so, you know, the parent always told me, hey, if he, if he causes you any trouble, you, you come to me. So I went to him, and um, I remember this one phrase. I said, you know, I went to the parent, he said, and he said, what happened? I said, this happened. He said that I'm not the boss of him. And she says, no, he is the boss of you. <laughs> and she made him say, I want you to say it right now, Pastor Rich is the boss of me, right? And he looks down, and he mumbles, Pastor Rich is the boss of me, Right? Now, that's just a microcosm 
of the kind of spirit that we all have towards any kind of outside authority. We just have, I guess, more money now to, to live on our own and to make our own decisions, buy our own stuff, right? You see, according to the Bible, the evil of the world actually stems from this, this hostility, this hatefulness of God's authority. And this dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to God's claim on our lives. We, we just don't have, happen to be in the position of King Herod, you see? In every heart, then, there is this little King Herod that wants to rule and that's threatened by anything that may com compromise our autonomy and our sovereignty. And so the question that the wise men ask in verse 2, where is the king? It's a disturbing question to the human heart since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our lives. Now, if you're a Christian, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, how can I be an enemy of God? Doesn't Paul say that through Jesus I've been reconciled to God, that I have peace with him? And yes, that is absolutely and wonderfully true. In Jesus, God has forgiven us and has reconciled us to him, but we have to recognize, as Paul shows in Romans chapter 6, verses, uh, chapter 6 to 8, that we still have a heart with residual hostility. It's still there. We're a new creation, but we're not a complete new creation, you see. And until we get to the very end of time and are glorified and we get our perfect bodies and our perfect souls, it'll always be there, this, this, this what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. It's not a spiritual walk in the park. And we always have to take that into consideration. Friends, why do you think it's so hard to pray? Right? It's a couple minutes. <laughs> but it's so hard. There's this hostility. You know? We don't want God telling us, oh, you need to do this because if you don't, you know, you're going to go into the darkness. We think, no, I think the show is going to relieve me a little bit. Why do you think it's so hard to concentrate on the most glorious person in the entire world? Why then, when God answers a pray, we, prayer, we say, I'll never forget this, Lord, but soon, quickly, we do. How many times have we said, I'll never do this again, and then two weeks later, we do it again? It's because there's still a little King Herod inside us. And so friends, it means that we've got to be far more intentional about the gospel's impact if you are a Christian already. We need to be far more intentional about prayer and accountability to experience victory in our lives. But how do we experience this victory? This brings us to the third thing we see in our text, the king's deliverance. You know, in verse 19 to 20, when Joseph finds out that Herod had passed away, he leaves Egypt for Israel. Matthew writes, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And this quotation of the prophet Hosea harkens back to the Exodus, where God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, it's easy to think the Israelites were good and the Egyptians were bad because they instituted slavery. But if you read the entire Bible, you'd be surprised because after the Exodus, 
the Israelites are just as immoral as the Egyptians. They're no better. They take their own slaves. They commit the exact same crimes. They just don't have the power the Egyptians have in this point in time during the Exodus. That's all. So even though God freed Israel from slavery objectively, the Israelites were still subjectively, in their hearts, still slaves to sin. You see, the Israelites are really a picture of us. You can take the people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the people very easily. And the word exodus is a literal translation of the Greek word ex-ados. Ex means out, ados means away, so exodus means a way out. God is providing a way out. God is getting Israel out of slavery. Salvation is not about just uh, getting out of institutional slavery, even though God hates that and wants us to fight against that. Ultimately, the ultimate exodus is about getting free from the bondage and slavery and the power of sin. It's freedom from the core of slavery, which is sin. You see, biblical freedom is freedom from all the oppressive masters in our lives that assume the absolute throne that only Jesus should be on. But we can't free ourselves even if we wanted to. The scriptures say that to break free from this power of sin in our lives is, is not just a matter of knowledge or willpower. You know, sometimes it's easy to think that if we just read this book, um, and become better people or try harder, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll change. But come Monday morning, we'll find ourselves defeated. Why? Because it's not a matter of knowing what to do or a, right, a matter of trying harder. You know, I look around in this room, I see very competent, very driven people. The Apostle Paul was probably one of the most knowledgeable and driven Christians that we have ever heard of. And even he says, I cannot do it. It's as if you're trying to swim upriver against the power of a current. You know, uh, just because you know that you are swimming against this current, uh, just because you think you can try harder, that somehow you're going to be able to swim through it. But you need, you need, you need, a, you need what? You need, a, you need a motorboat, Right? You need an external force. And in the same way, friends, we need the power of Christ to carry us out of spiritual slavery, of spiritual sin. Spiritual freedom, the kind of freedom that the Exodus is really talking about, the kind of freedom that Jesus has come to give, the kind of freedom that our passage is talking about, it needs a power encounter with Jesus Christ, with Jesus the King. So Jesus comes onto the picture. He comes into our world and he says, I'm going to bring the true Exodus. But how does he do this? Let me just say this and we'll close. Throughout Jesus' life, the apostles and the disciples kept saying to him, Jesus, when are you going to take power? When are you going to overthrow the Romans and free your people? 
And Jesus keeps saying to them, you don't understand. You need a greater exodus. You need a greater freedom. And to free you from the power of sin, I have to take its force. I am going to lose all my power and I'll die. So Jesus comes down from his heavenly throne and he frees us, but it costs him. Freedom always comes at a cost. And at the climax of Jesus' life, he ascends not to a throne, but to a cross. He transfers the power of sin onto himself. And like financial debt, he loses everything. But spiritual freedom is much more costly than financial freedom. It takes Jesus all the way to the grave. Verse 6 of our passage says that Jesus is not just a king. He is the shepherd king. Shepherd protects his flock. A shepherd provides for his flock. A shepherd will sacrifice his own life for the flock. Friends, the message of Christmas is that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're at, Jesus wants to free you from sin. This is the spirit of Christmas, the unconditional acceptance of Christ, the costly forgiveness on his behalf, and the spiritual freedom that Jesus gives to us. Right? That, that is why we give gifts in Christmas, because it represents the ultimate gift that we have received from Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Friends, if the king sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you so much for submitting to the will of the Father. And we are forgetful people, you know this. So we ask for your forgiveness. But we know that you want to give so much more than just that. You want to give us yourself. You want to unite us to you. And it is all about reconciling your people to you who are our creator, our perfect spouse, our perfect sibling, our perfect king. Oh, we are lost without you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you draw our hearts to you again? We need your mercies new every morning. Lord, would you humbly, but whatever it takes, knock us off our own thrones. For we do not know how to rule. Would you be the king of our lives? Would you be the king of our homes? Would you be the king of our hearts? Would you be the king of everything? For we can trust you because you gave us everything. We thank you so much that you have freed us, but it cost you. And we're so thankful that you love us that much. Would you blow our hearts open, not just today, right now, but Father, would you just keep us close to you? 
It's a battle. But we look forward to the second advent of Christ when all pain and suffering will be no more. And we shall be finally with our God who is Emmanuel. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.